Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mouthy IP. Today we have Kate Tyner and Sarah Stream talking about an interesting subject uh, that was brought to us recently. So we got this question via email and the question states, I work in a practice that uses glutaraldehyde as a cold sterile but I have a friend who works in another practice and they said that cold sterile is not recommended anymore. Can you clarify this for us? So Sarah, this is a great question. Um, As an infection preventionist, I would say one of the most difficult things I have learned about over time is um, what we call in dentistry cold sterile in an acute environment, we call it high level disinfection. These are the same chemicals, but these are essentially chemicals that we can use to disinfect equipment at a very high level um, when things are cannot tolerate steam sterilization, right? And so these are some of your plastic items or um, things that have to be soaked in this chemical disinfectant before they're used because we can't put them in the sterilizer. And so there are lots of chemicals that we can use for cold sterile or high level disinfection, right? And I think that's where this question is coming from, right? Glutaraldehyde is one of many. Um, In my practice at the hospital, we got away from glutaraldehyde many years ago. Glutaraldehyde has been, you know, long associated with toxicity. It's rather poisonous. And the amount of control measures in a hospital environment you would have to put into place to use it um, made the alternatives very attractive. And so the alternatives that we use in the hospital environment, and I hope that some of the dental practices are using are like the orthothaletidide products or OPA. Um, it took me years to figure out how to say orthothaletidide. Um, but those are your um, products that would be, they were kind of like glutaraldehyde was first generation, second generation was the orthothaletidide. And now we see some um, even better products coming onto the market that are easier to manage um, because they have less uh, poisonous characteristics. Yeah, I think that's a really good overview of kind of everything that's going on with this. Um, I would really like to unpack some things, though, and get a little bit more in depth. I think the first thing that I want to highlight is um, in dentistry, we call glutaraldehyde cold sterile. So if you've ever been in an office and you hear them talking about cold sterile, that's what it is. Um, The thing, though, is that that name is a little bit, um, it is not very accurate, right? Because it's not really sterilizing our instruments. In the hospital setting, it's called a high-level disinfectant. So, you know, that can be misleading in the dental world, calling it the cold sterile. Um, and I think that another, another issue with some of these chemicals that I've run into when I was in clinical practice is really being able to follow the manufacturer's instructions down to the T because a lot of people will say, well, you have to mix it once a month. It's not really once a month. It's supposed to be 28 days, right? 
So if you mix it once a month, that's 30 or 31 days, you know, you're going to have a few days in there where it's not effective. So I think that with glutaraldehyde specifically, there are a lot of really, really appealing reasons to kind of move away from it if you have that option at all. I think these are great points. And so um, I want to go back to what you talked about, about what we're using, a high-level disinfectant or a cold sterilant for. So um, what we, how we know what to use, what product for, is outlined really well in this criteria called the Spalding classification. Um, and we can put that into the show notes. But that basically, we decide how to disinfect something based on the type of tissue it touches. So if you think about what touches um, the patient's uh, cheeks on the outside or the outside of their skin on their hands, those are things that simply have to be disinfected with a low level disinfectant, like your disinfectant wipes, or um, do you guys use a spray or a, a soap or is it mostly wipes, Sarah? Um, it's, it could be either or. Uh, there are a lot of offices that still use the spray, but there are a lot like, of offices that use wipe. And we're not endorsing anything, but cabicide. Cavi wipes would be like an example right. of low-level disinfectants. And then the next category up kills more things, right? And the next category up are things that can touch mucous membranes. So you consider like the inside of your, your cheeks, your lips. Um, in uh, the rest of healthcare, these are things that can like enter body cavities. Um, so some ultrasound devices, things like that. And then the very most critical tissue, like if you're entering sterile tissue, considering surgical instruments or what you use in oral surgery, those things have to be steam sterilized or sterilized. Um, there are gas sterilants like ethylene oxide, um, but mo most dental practices don't use those unless they're at a very large center. Um, so it's really important that if you're wondering, maybe we can get rid of glutaraldehyde or cold sterile at our practice. Are there things that we can't steam sterilize? Um, that's one of the places to look at what, how should I be practicing or disinfecting something. And in that table, the Spalding criteria, you can always go up a level. Um, speculums are a great example. And some of the females on the call will, will know what I'm talking about. Those are things that they enter a mucous membrane. They like the minimum is they have to be um, high level disinfected. But in most cases, it's easier to batch sterilize them. We put a bunch of them into a sterilizer at once because the process is just easier. Um, and so you can always go up on a level you can't go down on a level. And so that's um, unpacking kind of how we decide what process we're gonna use. And I think when we're talking about these chemicals, it's really important to remember we're killing things when we disinfect, right? Uh, we are killing microorganisms in quantity. And so these are things that if they touch your skin are not gonna be good, right? Like they are meant to kill tissue. And so um, very important that personal protective equipment is used for any of these chemical disinfectants. So no matter if we're talking about OPA or glutaraldehyde, when we're talking about a high-level disinfectant, this is gonna be something that's rather poisonous. Its job is meant to kill stuff. It's very true. Um, I wanna go back to something you said, Kate, you were talking about the Spalding criteria and it wasn't until I was hired on as an IP here that I heard that term. But for those out there on the call, you may have heard the terms non-critical, semi-critical, and critical instruments. That is what the Spalding criteria is. So it groups your instruments into those three categories. We just have never labeled it Spalding criteria in any sort of education that I've taken. So. Right. 
So I think that that would be something great that we could put into the show notes or even something we can post on the website, Sarah, because I know when I've presented on this in a dental environment before, it's really helpful to kind of break that down by category and give examples of instrumentation appropriate for your environment that people will be like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, just like you're saying, that way we're all speaking the same language. Definitely. Well, we decided to get on the call, I think, um, and this question came up. Um, somebody is concerned about gluteraldehyde. Should I use it in my practice or not? And so one of the things we wanted to talk about is, is gluteraldehyde dangerous, right? And I think that's one of the items that we kind of want to spend some time on talking about, right, Sarah? It is. And I will just say the short answer is yes, gluteraldehyde is dangerous. <laughs> um, right. There, there are a lot of reasons that it has been um, kind of been phased out in a lot of healthcare settings. Um, Kate's already talked about some of those. You know, it it is a poison. If you think about the word glutaraldehyde, um, the aldehyde family are fixatives, right? That's what they use in preserving tissue. So, you breathing that in when you're working is probably not a good thing. And so I think um, when people use these chemicals day in and day out, it, it's easy to kind of downplay um, the, the safety indications with those chemicals. Every practice that uses chemicals should have what we call an SDS, right? Uh, when you have chemicals in the building, you should have a listing of those chemicals, their safety considerations, and be able to present that. Um, just like you would have like an infection control program, you need to have a safety program on the chemicals in your office. Um, and that is something that when we talk about like, who cares, um, that would be an OSHA standard, right? Is that we know how to keep our workers safe in the environment. And um, glutaraldehyde is definitely an example of something that's considered kind of old fashioned. Um, glutaraldehyde is toxic enough that when people are using it, um, we would have to put some controls in place. Like, we would care about the number of air changes in the room so that you're filtering fresh air to get that chemical residue out of the air. Do you wanna maybe unpack that a little bit, Sarah? Yeah, so I, I'm just gonna throw this out there and I'm not picking on anybody, but every office I've ever been in that uses cold sterile does not have any sort of independent air exchange or filtration system in place with that. Um, you know, usually it's a little Tupperware that's just sitting on the counter in their sterilization area. Um, you know, Kate, earlier you were talking about having a sort of chemical hood over those types of chemicals. So we don't, right. um, you know, that's, it's not just in the air all day long. Right. And that when we have to pick a chemical, sometimes we're not so lucky that we, we get to pick the one we like the best. Sometimes we're driven by the instruments themselves, what the manufacturer of the instrument says we should use. And so in that way, um, in healthcare environments, sometimes we have to use things that are require a little more care. And for those places where we have to use those more toxic chemicals, you're right. Like um, think about in a laboratory where you would have, or even like the hood over your stove at home, you have a system that draws air out and passes it through a filter um, to control um, for those toxins in the air. And so that's one way, if you must use glutaraldehyde, a facility can engineer that to make it a little safer. Um, you talked about um, particulate monitoring in airflow also um, in an earlier conversation with me, Sarah. Yeah, um, and this is also, you know, these things are 
OSHA requirements when you use glutaraldehyde. So OSHA is really big on protecting our employees and this chemical is dangerous enough that they put these requirements in place. Um, so they want you to also monitor the particulate in the air. So, you know, you can do that a couple different ways. You can have an air quality monitoring system that is, you know, somewhere around where you have that chemical. You can also have your employees wear badges that tell you how much chemical they're exposed to. And then um, if, you're, if you're exposed to enough chemical or if there's enough particulate in the air, then you need to have extra PPE requirements. So OSHA says um, any more than 0.05 parts per million of glutaraldehyde in the air, you should be wearing an N95 respirator when you're around those. Um, and some small offices are small enough that you know that could potentially be your whole office all day long. Right. And so um, when we really start unpacking like the safety measures associated with use of glutaraldehyde, the reasonable alternative becomes, could we use something else? Could we use something else that requires less stuff um, and accessories? And so that is why many facilities have transferred to an OPA or an orthothaletidide product. Um, and that would be when I entered the dental environment as an infection preventionist years ago, this was one of the big surprises. Like they're still using glutaraldehyde. We phased that out a long time ago. So it's possible. That's the thing is that the, the more the mission may be, um, we need to switch chemicals rather than building in the safeguards around continued use of this chemical. Um, with that, I think it's important. We, we talked a little bit about instructions for use, right? Some of the difficulty in um, what the standards should be, what we should do, rely on the chemical itself. So no matter what chemical you're using as a facility, you are 100% accountable to follow the instructions from the manufacturer. Even with OPA, for example, I've been in facilities that ask, well, how many air exchanges should I use for OPA? I, I don't know what product you're using and I haven't looked at those directions. We gotta go to your instruction manual and look at what the specific instruction manual says. And this is something that is, um, when you consider like other standards in healthcare, usually we can go to a, a, like a central location. We can say like, what does OSHA require, et cetera. But with chemicals, you have to go to the manufacturer and ask, what does the manufacturer require? And even one product might be a 10 minute soak time. Another product might be a 12 minute soak time. Um, and so it's very important, you know, what your chemical soak time is. And I think when we talk about general best practices, more is not better. Glutaraldehyde is one particularly, um, it's hard to rinse. And the longer you leave an instrument in the glutaraldehyde, if you say, well, 10 minutes is good, 20 minutes is even better. The problem with that is it becomes really difficult to rinse the product and you may be unable to get the product off of your instruments to the point that if you stick that in somebody's mouth, it could still have that toxin on it to the point of tissue staining, or bad taste, et cetera, that are very serious. You know, these aren't like, you know, minimal concerns. If we have this really toxic chemical still on a piece of equipment, we can't be putting it into people's mouth. So with that, in a, in a given dental facility, they'll have multiple instruments from varied manufacturers, all with different requirements, um, not suggestions, but requirements for, uh, either sterilization or the like. So is it likely that most of the dental facilities have multiple chemicals and do they 
do the manufacturers provide options um, as far as saying, here's this one is preferred, this is an alternative one, this is alternative two? That's a great question, Dan. What you find is I think the easiest thing to do is kind of um, not, not literally, but figuratively bucket your instruments, right? The easiest things to consider first are those that can go through steam sterilization, right? Like what's the general procedure? And we essentially identify like how long does, does a cassette take to sterilize? How long does a peel pouch take to sterilize? And what are the outliers? You know, so what's the standard? And then what's the outlier? What are the special packs? And that way you don't necessarily have a procedure on every single thing. You have the main procedure and then guidance on the outliers. And um, the, the other good part of your question, Dan, is say a facility has some older equipment. It's still working well, it's functioning well. Um, and the original instructions mention glutaraldehyde. And in the best case scenario, you know, maybe they still have the, the processing booklet from that instrument because you really should have processing booklets on all your instruments. Um, that would be a time that you would go back to the manufacturer, usually their website, and say like, what are the updated um, like instructions for processing this equipment? If it listed glutaraldehyde in 1992, for example, let's look at what's the 2021 standard and see do they mention other compatible disinfectants. And that would be if you're running into a barrier with that, that's the first thing is I would contact the manufacturer and have them help you work through that. I think another really good resource to go to is your dental sales rep. They a lot of times have been working with your office for many, many years. They kind of know what you like and they may be able to offer some alternative suggestions, glutaraldehyde, that maybe are very similar in use. So it won't be a huge change for your practice to you know go through a whole bunch of training, but you're taking that dangerous chemical kind of out of the equation. And with that, um, I think letting your sales rep kind of help you with the choices and pulling together the comparative statistics or qualifications on those things are very good resources, but I will still advise any facility, you got to pull your instructions for use on your chemical. Once you select it, pull those, and before you buy six months worth, really look at those instructions for use and like, how are we going to implement this in our facility? As simple as you talked about, Sarah, like, you know, are you soaking instruments in a Tupperware, right? That these, again, these are very concentrated poisons. That is what they are meant to do. I'm not being like glib when I say that. Some things can go into a plastic container like Tupperware. Some companies will require, um, you know, a very high grade polyvinyl container that won't corrode when it's exposed to those chemicals over time. So those are important considerations to make sure, you know, and if I buy some of this chemical, will they give me a soaking container for free? That's not a bad ask. Um, and then with a good question that, for your dental rep, get me a container for free. <laughs> get me a container for free. And then with that, thinking about like the size of the container, where you'll put it and things like the lid. It matters that the lid fits well because we should not have the lids off of these containers. Even uh, one of the safer OPA products, you still don't want that lid off throughout the day. It is, we want to contain the poisons and the gas from the poisons in the box. And so we need to leave the lid on when we don't need the, the box open. So the functionality of that equipment matters in a big way for your day-to-day -day use. And I'm, I've always tried to simplify wherever I can and simplification uh, can help reduce errors 
and training and then overall costs. Uh, do you find that some facilities are trying to consolidate and uh, lessen the numbers of chemicals that they're using, have uh, some that are more preferred than others, uh, reduce their footprint so that training and consistency is a little bit uh, more prevalent? It's a great, great question. question. If they're not, they should, yeah. right? Like that, those are really just excellent business principles. Again, you're talking to a lot of small businesses that um, when you talk about a complex task, how can we make this as engineered um, to the degree that people, it's very easy to do it the right way. Um, one of the simple things with that is if we're using um, a particular brand, what can we match up? Like if we're using an OPA, is the soaking container also OPA? Do they, does that manufacturer have a log? Like even like something like we don't have to buy their paper every time, but they have um, a formula for what you should monitor every time and they have training resources. So the office doesn't have to create all those things themselves. Any manufacturer should have those things for you. And again, that's something that the, the product representative or the dental rep you're talking about, Sarah, you want that to be part of your program, right? If I select this product, help me implement it. What are the videos? What are the training requirements? What should I keep on file? To, again, Dan, to your point, like let's simplify this as much as possible. Help me with implementation in such a way that we get everything we can wrapped up into this, that we, we design that process to be really lean. Those are all great points, Kate. And I wanna go back just a little bit to, you know, designing that process around whatever chemical you choose. Um, you know, if, if you're not able to get rid of glutaraldehyde and you have to use it, you need to make sure you understand those manufacturers instructions that everybody is trained on it. And, um, you know, engineer your program so that everybody understands exactly what works and what doesn't. Um, I know when I was in private practice, the glutaraldehyde solution that we used, our instruments had to be in there for 10 hours. It was a 10 hour soak time. So like Kate said earlier, longer is not better, right? So if I put an instrument in there at noon, it's not gonna be done until 10 p.m. I'm not gonna be there to take it out of the tub. It's gonna sit in there until 8 a.m. <laughs> the other part of that is, you know, throughout the day, we throw more instruments in on top. So, you know, how do you know that one from 8 a.m. is done, but the one from 10 a.m. isn't? So are there some of those kinds of processes that you need to think through for your office? Um, whether it's, you know, collecting all your instruments and putting them in at five o'clock right before you leave. So that way, you know, 8 a.m. is closer to the 10 hour mark. Um, those are just all really good things to think of when you're looking at your instructions for use and how you're gonna design your program. I think those are excellent considerations, Sarah, and I'll build on that a little bit, right? Does everybody in the practice need to know how to use the glutaraldehyde? No. You know, like um, you will want your practice to have enough of those instruments that are heat sensitive that maybe you don't have to run that process more than once a day, right? That the person who's coming in at 7.30 um, does the soak and before they leave that day, they take it out or something like that. Um, the other thing that I will have people um, with high level disinfection, something that's really important about that is um, we talked about the aldehyde base of all these disinfectants. That is a fixative, period, end of story. It fixes tissue 
to instrumentation. And so your cleaning process is really, really important, right? So you wanna be using a sufficient enzymatic cleaner to clean all the blood and body fluid off of the instruments. And once those things are clean, those things can sit for a while before they go into the glutaraldehyde. So there are ways to kind of manage that process. You could have people dumping stuff into an enzymatic cleaner all day and doing a scrub of the enzymatic, you know, at last thing of the day. And then we'll put the one load together in glutaraldehyde. Um, you know, it's just a matter of like those process things, what can wait and what can't. What cannot wait is the idea of getting the blood and body fluid off the instruments that can't wait till the end of the day. And that's really important because of what we're doing, putting like these disinfectants aren't like Dawn dish soap. You know, you think about the commercial from when we were children where the soap makes the, the grease disappear. It's actually the opposite. Um, what makes grease disappear is a surfactant, that's soap. And that's what's in your um, enzymatic cleaner. The disinfectants are not built that way. They are not like two-in-one products, et cetera. They are meant to take a clean instrument and disinfect it. It's just like we don't put things with blood and body fluid on the instruments and put them in the sterile. It'll bake on, similar in cold sterile. It'll bake on during that soap process. And once it's on there and baked on, it's so much harder to get it clean. Right. And especially your really tight lumen devices, like perhaps no longer possible to remove after it's been fixed to the instrument. It ruins things. And so I think when we, you think about your disinfection process at all, I think that, that in, in bigger facilities, we try to centralize that as much as possible. These technically difficult tasks Let's put that on a small group of people who are considered the experts. Those are the people we train and keep competent. Not everybody has to do that task. So maybe you're, um, and you can totally tell me I'm thinking about it wrong, Sarah. Maybe the hygienists should not be the ones who are disinfecting things. Maybe the, it's the hygienist. They can put things into the, the um, enzymatic cleaner throughout the day. They can scrub things off, et cetera but we're gonna have the assistants who run the sterilizer, who run that high level disinfection or cold sterile process. Those are the people who manage it. We're not gonna ask those other people to do it because it becomes difficult to keep everybody trained and competent on a technically difficult task. We can have a core team who does that task as long as we have enough instruments to manage those activities. I think that's a great idea. Um, I also wanted to kind of look at, I know we've talked about the OPA products being an alternative, but there are some other options for alternatives. So um, a lot of the instruments that go into cold sterile in a dental practice are, like Kate said, those plastics that can't be heat sterilized, steam sterilized, right? They will melt in your sterilizer and it will be a giant mess. Um, but I also want to point out to everybody that over the last 10 years, the technology in plastics has gotten so much better. And so you can get some of those things that you would traditionally put in a cold sterile now are safe to be heat sterilized. So some things like your XCP rings, right? Those are a non-critical item. You know, they touch the outside of the patient's face, but they're plastic. So normally we would just throw those in cold sterile but now they're able to be heat sterilized. So you can, you know, put that whole XCP device in one pouch, keep it all together and heat sterilize it. 
Um, another option, another good option is to start looking at uh, single use items that you could use in your office instead of having to use that cold sterile to right. reuse cold those items. Is, is not cost neutral, right? Those chemicals cost money. And so I think that's an excellent point, Sarah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, but you're I fine. Think we, we know that it's difficult in a small business environment to have to make the case for single use instruments, right? But I think when you start considering that and you compare it to these, you know, high level disinfectant or cold sterile process um, disinfectants, those are expensive. And so like, let's talk about the cost in real terms. What does cold sterile cost and figure it accurately. Can, and then in that budget realm, what can we do that's single use? And I think it, it gets a little bit easier when the office is maybe using cold sterile for just one or two things, right? Those one or two things, you can probably find an alternative that's either disposable or you can heat sterilize. Those so, are excellent points. You know, is it worth it to keep using the glutaraldehyde for one or two things? Right, and I think it, it goes, I wanna make sure people understand if you're using glutaraldehyde, you have to figure out a safe way to do it. It is a very toxic chemical. It is something that is very much looked at by OSHA. If you're using glutaraldehyde, your options aren't, do I make it safer or do I not? You have to make it safer or choose something else. Yeah, and I think one thing we didn't talk about yet is um, not only safety for your employees, but safety for the environment, right? When you're right. disposing of that, if you have it in your office, it has to be neutralized before you can dispose of it. Right, and that's something that your product representative will be able to help you with. Again, we have to recognize that these are, we need these chemicals to make healthcare safe. However, they are poisons. We can't just put them down the drain and expect that nothing bad would happen. So um, these manufacturers usually have a neutralizing agent that can be put down the drain with the um, cold sterile product. Um, in addition to OPA products, there are other high level disinfectants that have come onto the market in the last couple of years, Sarah. And those are things that are accelerated hydrogen peroxide products. And so um, there's lots of options in this realm. And I think that's to your point of talking to your representative about what's available. Um, we haven't said all the names of the product even on this episode. I think it's important that um, the listeners understand that you just go to your product representative, look at the catalog and then start comparing the, um, the different disinfectants. You know, What could your facility implement um, and what matches your needs the best? Yeah, and keeping it, keeping it safe for your employees, keeping it cost-effective and safe for the environment. Those are all things that you need to take into consideration. And we can, um, we can definitely put some resources into the show notes, Sarah, um, some great um, peer-reviewed literature that compares different um, categories of high-level disinfectants, kind of what are the pros and cons, um, as well as the OSHA information, I think. Absolutely. And I just want to uh, send a shout out out. The Mouthy IP is on Twitter now. So if you would like to join in the conversation or ask us questions through Twitter, feel free to do so. Our tag is at Mouthy underscore IP. We do want to hear those questions. So please do. do audience members, send us the questions and we'll address it on an episode. We will. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Sarah. What a lively conversation we just had. 
Thanks for everyone for joining us again today. Look for us uh, next week for a new podcast. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode, and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.